Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 26, titled The Fourth Floor, Part 2, wherein we continue our discussion of R-dropping and the New York accent. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. What about yourself? I'm great, but I feel a little bad, I'll admit, because last episode... I read some pretty harsh criticism of you from listeners, which you probably remember. Yeah, I do, uh, I do vaguely remember uh, something that you may have read. <laughs> Although, you know, truth be told, you have the skin of a rhinoceros, right? So I knew you could take it. But I did promise that I would this week come back with some praise. So here we go. Thatcher Hogan wrote in an email, Why do I like Lexicon Valley? Because long ago I read Dick and Jane books, and Mike Volo is clearly no ordinary Tom, Dick, Harry, or Jane. And one Jane was a Mansfield, while Bob is a Garfield. Our 20th president was also a Garfield. Presidents head the executive branch. Branches grow on trees, and trees grow around fields. Valleys have fields, and fields have farmers. So that is why I like Lexicon Valley, because they feature people who, like farmers, are outstanding in their fields. Wow. Thank you, Thatcher. And can I just say now that apart from being delighted with the sentiment behind that disquisition, I'm just so envious of the name Thatcher Hogan (laughs) because, you know, Jews can't do that. They can't have last names as first names, Thatcher and Hunter and uh, Taylor and Bradford. You know, it'd be like, Schwartzbaum, get in here. Glickman, get in here. Your dinner's getting cold. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Finkelstein, I'm not going to tell you again. You can't do it. It just doesn't scan. So I have uh, I have wasp envy. Although your original name, Garfinkel, as we've discussed on this podcast, has been anglicized to Garfield, and you could conceivably have a first name Garfield. So not only do you have wasp envy, but you're actually a Jew who's borrowing from these Gentile traditions. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess I'm the Lord of Mountbatten of Jews. Well, in any case, Thatcher Hogan, at the end of his email, uh, suggested that his wordplay was loosely based on an old Three Stooges routine, which I don't know, so I'll take his word for it. One more letter, Bob. This one from Sophia E. Terranova, who wrote on iTunes, As I began my third podcast of Lexicon Valley, in a row, thoroughly enjoying every word, I thought, I'm going to give them a great rating. Then you did the part one, part two episode and left me hanging off the cliff from episode 25. Not nice, guys. Irritating. Rosebud. What if you get hit by a bus? I wish I had found you after the next episode, but I'm going to return for part two. Thanks very much. Great podcast. Hold on one second. <laughs> Rosebud. Rosebud. No, not Rosebud. That's the uh, spoiler. Yeah. And we didn't provide a spoiler. A cliffhanger is the opposite of a spoiler. I know. I think maybe she was just trying to get back at us, hoping maybe we hadn't seen Citizen Kane oh. and was just, <laughs> was just doing what she could to wreak vengeance. She was just lashing out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Actually, I don't disagree with her. I think we may have done some like premature evacuation from our storyline <laughs> and uh, maybe should have given the listeners a little more before we dangled them over the cliff. All right. Well, here's a brief recap of where we left off. In the early 1950s, a sociologist named C. Wright Mills observed that middle-class people, when they come into contact with those of a higher status, will, as he put it, borrow prestige from them. And an example he gave was that employees of an upscale department store will draw dignity and Power was, I think, the word that you used, self-worth, from contact with the well-heeled clientele, right? More so than employees of a more downscale department store whose clientele is presumably more déclassé. Yeah, I think we used the example of the uh, snooty maitre d', but you know, I think it also extends to people I deal with all the time, the desk assistants to powerful people. Mm-hmm. who just treat you horribly, even though they're answering phones at $11,000 a year, because the boss is a big mocker, they treat every caller like dirt. So about a decade later, in the early 1960s, a linguist named William LeBove wondered whether this prestige borrowing extended to language, to the way we talk. And for a longer discussion of this, if you haven't already, listen to our previous episode. But in a nutshell, here's what he did. In Manhattan, he went into Saks Fifth Avenue, an upscale department store, Macy's, more middle of the road, and S. Klein, a discount department store, and as inconspicuously as possible, walked up to employees and asked them, for example, where are men's suits? He was trying to get them to say the phrase, fourth floor. He would then lean in, say, excuse me, pretending he didn't hear them, so that they would repeat it. And across all three stores, he did this with more than 250 employees. Okay, and once again, he knew where the men's suits were, but he was trying to get people to say the words fourth floor to see if they dropped the R's and said fourth floor. Exactly. So what did he find? Well, let's look at the percentage of employees in each store who were complete R-droppers. In other words, they pronounced fourth, fourth, and floor, floor. And when he said, excuse me, they again dropped their R's. At Saks, it was 38%. At Macy's, it was 49%. 
and at S. Klein, it was 79%. (laughs) Pretty much playing to type, in other words. Yeah. Now, it's hard to say whether this pattern exists because of prestige borrowing or if some other factor might explain it, right? Perhaps the ultimate test would be to swap all of the employees from Saks and S. Klein, say, go back a month later and see if the former S. Klein, now Saks employees, are borrowing prestige. In other words, dropping fewer R's. But, you know, for obvious reasons, you can't do that. These are not lab mice. These are human beings. But what you can do is drill down further in the data. In addition to noting whether or not each employee dropped their R's, William LeBove also noted their apparent race or ethnicity, their sex, he estimated their age, things like that. So let's look at the percentage of complete R-droppers among just African Americans. At Macy's, it was 53%. At S. Klein, it was 94%. The number of African American employees he ran into at Saks was just two, which is far too Mm. small a sample size to be meaningful. But you see, at least with Macy's and S. Klein, the pattern sustains. Two black employees at uh, Saxon. I don't know what it tells us about linguistics, but it it tells us a lot about the 60s. (laughs) Sure does. Now, let's look at the percentage of complete R-droppers among just white women, which is the largest subcategory of employees by both gender and race. At Saks, it was 33%. At Macy's, 41%, and at S. Klein, 70%. So again, the pattern sustains. I wonder, Mike, and maybe I should have asked this earlier, we were discussing prestige borrowing, but does this track actually with socioeconomics? Do the demographics of the employees at S. Klein match the customer base of S. Klein, and do the demographics of the Sachs employees match that of Sachs customers? Is this a question of, uh, for want of another word, sophistication? It's a good question, and that's one of the things that we don't know about the employees. But he did sort of drill down in a different way that might account for that. For example, he also did some comparisons among employees within the same store. He noticed that the ground floor of Saks was very Macy's-like in the amount of stuff displayed, the sort of the way it was displayed— And the upper floors were much fancier. They appeared to be, as he put it, devoted to high fashion. Ding! Seventh floor, better dresses. (laughs) Were you an employee? Uh, No, I was was a little boy, but somehow I have the image etched in my consciousness. Movies, I would expect. Given what Lebov observed, you might guess that there would be more prestige borrowing taking place on those upper floors. And sure enough, the percentage of employees on the combined upper floors who were complete R-droppers was only 26. On the ground floor, it was 54%. That, at least, is using all of the employees from one store. And again, Lebov admits that there's certain information we don't know that would be useful, like the education level of the employees, where more precisely they're from in New York. But nevertheless, you see that even when you slice and dice the data into smaller subgroups, this social stratification of R-dropping is preserved, and prestige borrowing almost certainly explains some of it. Now, Lebov kept track of something else that yielded a really interesting finding— And we'll talk about it in a minute. First, let's take a short break to mention our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and audio entertainment on the internet. 
you can sign up for a 30-day trial membership and get one free audiobook of your choice if you go to the URL audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Uh, coming out in a few months is a film version of The Great Gatsby starring Leonardo DiCaprio and directed by Baz Luhrmann. I'm really looking forward to it, mostly because I love Baz Luhrmann. I love Moulin Rouge. I love Strictly Ballroom. But before you see that movie, I would recommend listening to The Great Gatsby. It's a fantastic book, and it's a great book to listen to. Audible has a version read by the actor Tim Robbins. It's a book, of course, that takes place in New York. You can imagine New York accents of the day as you're listening to Tim Robbins read it. Of course, there are thousands of books to choose from, everything from classics to bestsellers, and your membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. Give it a try. Use the URL that Audible set up so that they know you're a Lexicon Valley listener. It's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Okay, remember I mentioned that after William LeBove got the employees at these various stores to say fourth floor, he would get them to repeat it by pretending he didn't hear them. Excuse me, can you tell me where to find dress shirts? Fourth floor. I'm sorry, excuse me? What are you, deaf? I said fourth floor. (laughs) Now, of course, there were a number of people who, like you, said fourth floor both times. And there were people who said fourth floor both times. But there were a significant number of people in all three stores who sort of self-corrected. So, Wait wait a second, wait a second. Let's go through this routine again. Ask me. (laughs) Excuse me, can you tell me where to find dress shirts? Fourth floor. I'm sorry, excuse me? Fourth floor. This way, please. What you, what's self-corrected? What? Okay, so hear me out. At Macy's, the first time employees said the word floor, the R was produced 44% of the time. The second time they said floor, the R was produced 61% of the time, which is a pretty big jump. What would account for this instantaneous self-consciousness? I don't get it. We'll get there. At Klein's, it went from 8% to 18%. And a similar pattern occurred for the word fourth. At Saks, the first time fourth was said, the R could be heard 30% of the time. And when they repeated fourth, it jumped to 40%. Now, if you think about it, you might come up with an explanation for that. Maybe you're just not capable of thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know sometimes I'm walking down the street and I catch myself slumping and I'll throw my shoulders back very self-consciously because it suddenly occurs to me. Is the second question a trigger to remind you to uh, clean up your speech? In a way, what this means is that some number of employees in each of the stores who would normally drop their R's when speaking casually, as LeBove put it, will produce their R's when speaking carefully or emphatically. In other words, at some level, they're aware that producing the R is considered correct, and it's an option for them, if not their first instinct. When you feel like you haven't been heard or haven't been understood, you tend to speak more carefully. And when you speak more carefully and emphatically, you speak in a way that you think is the most correct. Mm. This movement back and forth between dropping your R's and not dropping your R's, depending on the situation, Lebove came up with a term for it. He called it linguistic insecurity. You could imagine that if enough New Yorkers were sufficiently insecure about dropping their R's and more and more started producing their R's, that over time we could measure a change in the way New Yorkers talk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so over time. Now, in our last episode, you you said that while Lebov never 
repeated his experiments. Um, subsequent generations of linguists did in later decades. So there's, a, in effect, a longitudinal view of this phenomenon. What did they come up with? That's right. I did say that. So in the mid-1980s, a linguistics major at NYU named Joy Fowler repeated Lebeau's study. This is, you know, 23 years later. By this time, S. Klein had gone out of business. So she chose a different discount department store called Mays, which, like S. Klein, was also on Union Square. And Saks and Macy's, of course, were still in business, still in the same place. What she found was a pattern that was remarkably similar to Lebeau's. Employees at Saks produced the most R's, then Macy's, and employees at Mays were a clear, distant third. However, the overall use of R went up in all three stores by an average of about 7%. In other words, New Yorkers, while they were still socially stratified in their use of R, it appeared that as a population, they were becoming more R-ful. R-ful? That's awful. That's an earful. Arful? <laughs> they were producing more R's. Linguistic insecurity was taking hold in, in an entire metropolis. 23 years after that, in 2009, another linguist named Patrick Andre Mather repeated the study again. Now, by this time, Mays had closed down, so he substituted Filene's Basement and Lomans as the discount department store. And once again, he found the same pattern of social stratification across the stores, but with even more total R production, an increase of about 15% over Lebeau's data. Total R production. <laughs> you know, thank God it hadn't moved offshore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're outsourcing their R dropping. <laughs> well, you know, I could use the you know technical linguistic term, which is roticity. Using your R's in linguistics is referred to as roticity. Dropping your R is referred to as non-roticity, and that's R-H-O, as in the Greek letter rho. No, I know. I got a roticity on my grill. I, I never figured out how to install it, though. <laughs> So let's back up for a moment. Let's back up 100 years to the early 1900s. As I mentioned in the last episode, parts of New England and New York and the South were at that time either largely or completely R-less in the ways that we're talking about, right? People would never produce those R's at the ends of words. And that has to do with the way that those regions were settled during colonial times and after by people from Southern England who were themselves largely R-droppers. Not only was R-dropping the norm in those regions of the U.S. at the time, but it had a kind of national prestige because England had a prestige. And you can hear it in the speech of a lot of patrician Americans of the time. Listen, Bob, to this excerpt from FDR's first inaugural address in 1933. You don't even have to play the tape, Mike. I know what, I know what it is. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. <laughs> well, as good as that was, I'm going to play the tape anyway. Here it is. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. Terror, prospa, endua, fear. The guy's a total R-dropper. Now, after World War II, as the influence and prestige 
of England began to decline here in America, so too did R dropping. The prestige sort of flipped. In other words, producing your R's became the more accepted, more prestigious way of speaking. So by the time William LeBeau did his department store study in the early 1960s, New Yorkers were already much more R-ful than they were 20 years prior. And he predicted that this trend would continue. Well, the, the two subsequent studies did seem to bear that out. You know, maybe by 2050, they'll be trilling, which is a sound I actually can't produce, but I bet you can. You can't roll your R's? No, I have a speech impediment in about 40 languages. <laughs> Give it a shot. I don't want to embarrass you. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's nothing I would want to inflict. Okay. Well, I won't do it because I don't want to make you feel inferior. You don't have to trill an R to make me feel inferior. <laughs> I feel pre-inferior for your convenience. Well, you know, as a kind of total tangent, Bob, in ancient Rome, the letter R was known as the canine letter. Shakespeare even has a reference to this. He calls it the dog's letter because the trilling of an R was thought to sound like the kind of low growl of a dog. You know, like, mm. Oh, you did do it. I did. That's right. I wish I could do that. So LeBeau predicted that this trend would continue, and he called it a change from above. And I asked a linguist named Kara Becker, who is a professor at Reed College in Oregon and who has studied R-dropping, I asked her what he meant by that. Here's Becker. A change from above is a change that speakers are aware of, right? So it's above the level of consciousness. And R is really the classic example of a change from above. What that means is that New Yorkers were and are aware of the negative associations with R-dropping. They're aware of the fact that other Americans produce their R's in these same contexts, and they're aware of the fact that producing R's is now considered to be correct, is considered to be the norm in American English. And so as a result of being aware of that, they start to produce more and more of their R's. And it's something that happens slowly and happens over a few generations, but they sort of actively participate to kind of get up to speed with the rest of American English and produce those R's. More or less, as you surmised. Yeah, and this move towards R-fulness has occurred in the other R-dropping regions of the U.S. as well, in New England, in the South. Here again is Becker. Today, if you're a young Southerner, right, you're born and raised in the South and you're 20, 30 years old, you should be producing all of your R's. Your community has completed that change. So there isn't a norm of R-dropping in the South anymore. If you had to bet on the future of R-dropping in New York, where's your money? You know, I think that R will complete its change in New York City English. Remember that this flip in terms of prestige for R, this maintains today, right? So it is still the case that Americans think that producing our R's is the quote-unquote correct way to speak. So we have no reason to think that R won't complete that change in New York and come back into New York City speech. It's just the case that it's happening slower than we thought it would. So why is New York moving more slowly towards R-fulness than the South did? Uh, does it have something to do with those big gulps that the mayor just outlawed? We don't know for sure, but there's some really interesting research that Becker did that might provide a clue. Several years ago, when Becker was at NYU, she lived on the Lower East Side. She found a number of people who lived nearby on her block, I believe, who were born and raised on the Lower East Side and still live there. She recorded conversations with them, very freewheeling conversations that went on for an hour, an hour and a half. And she looked at whether their use of R's 
varied depending on what they were talking about. Here again is Becker. And so what I did was I looked at the use of R across topics in each interview. And I was interested in topics that had to do with kind of local issues, speakers talking about the Lower East Side, talking about their neighborhood, and talking about New York, versus when they were talking about, you know, something entirely different, a trip they took or an opinion that they have about, you know, something unrelated to this local context. And so what I found was something that was really interesting, which is that speakers, when they were talking about local topics, when they were really talking about their neighborhood, they used less R, significantly less than when they talked about other things. When they talked about other things, they used a good amount of R's. They were really inserting those R's back into their speech. Yes, global warming is such a horror. And speaking of horror, how about the fucking Rangers fucking power play? Bob, you're on a mission to just insult like every single demographic in this country. What, hockey fans? What? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So let's take a specific example from Becker's research. One of the Lower East Siders that she spoke to was a man named Michael. He was about 75 years old at the time. He has a graduate level education and he's a pastor. Their conversation started off with him talking about his career. During that topic, he was producing his R's about a third of the time. When they were talking about the history of the neighborhood, the Lower East Side, his R production dropped to 13%. When they talked about his family relations, it went back up to 39%. When they talked about games he played as a child in the neighborhood, back down to 17%. When they talked about spirituality up to 31% when they talked about changes taking place in the neighborhood down to 10%. So here's what Becker thinks might be going on here. The speakers were dropping their R's really to indicate or to sort of pump up their New Yorkness in that moment. So when they're talking about a neighborhood topic, what they want is to convey just how authentic and kind of local of a New Yorker they are. And they're probably not even aware that they're doing that. They're probably not. Um, the consciousness that speakers have about a feature like R isn't really something that you have every moment, right? It's not like I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror and I say, well, I'm going to really pronounce my R's today. Um, so I, I'm not necessarily aware of it moment to moment, right? I am sort of generally aware of uh, the fact that producing my R's is considered more correct. So there's a way of thinking about this that I think can tie all of this together. The overall trend in New York like in other historically R-less areas of the country, is towards more R production, right? We saw that even for people who typically drop R's when speaking casually, when they're speaking more carefully in a way that they presumably think is more correct, then producing the R is an option. They're acknowledging, in a sense, what's called the overt prestige in America of using your R's. But there's also something in linguistics called covert prestige, In other words, altering the way you speak slightly to identify yourself as authentically part of a local community. So for some New Yorkers, dropping their R's is an option, a resource, as Becker puts it. And those two things, the overt prestige of producing your R's and the covert prestige of dropping your R's, exist in tension. In other words, because dropping R's is so strongly identified with New Yorkness and often proudly so, right, there's a temptation to give in to this covert prestige if you think of yourself as a New Yorker. You mean kind of like George Bush's affected twang to uh, seem more like 
a Texan and a man of the people versus a a Yale graduate of some privilege? Yeah, exactly. So in New York, this might cause the trend toward our production to occur more slowly. That's a theory, right? And it may even be just my theory. I couldn't get Kara Becker to commit to it, but she conceded that it was certainly a possibility. So, Mike, there's this invisible, if not inaudible, battle between overt prestige, using ours, and covert prestige, intentionally dropping them. The trend line seems to suggest that the overt prestige will win out. Does this presage an awful New York uh, for posterity? Yeah, that's what linguists are predicting, that New York, certainly Kara Becker believes this, and many other linguists believe that it's inevitable that New York will become fully our full in the not-too-distant future. And, you know, one last thing, keep in mind that in much of the rest of the English-speaking world, in England, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, our listeners remains the overt prestigious norm. Here in North America, we're something of an outlier. But not outlier. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, well, if you're an outlier or an outlier, send us an email at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Please, if you have not already, subscribe to our feed in iTunes where you can leave a rating and a review. I want to thank Kara Becker at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast. All right, Mikey, we done here? We're done. Later, Gator. Dearest father, darling mother, how's my precious little brother? Let me come home if you miss me. I would even let Aunt Bertha hug and kiss me. Wait a minute, it stopped hailing, guys are swimming, guys are sailing, playing baseball, gee that's better, mata fada, kindly disregard this letter. (laughs) 